0: Joining me today is Neil Shah, Vice President of our Global Mergers and Acquisitions team, who sits in our Washington, D.C. office. Neil joins us as we kick off a series on M&A at Bain, where we'll dive deep into some of the exciting work the Bain M&A team is doing. Today, we'll talk with Neil about his background and journey to Bain and back to Bain, how he was introduced to M&A, and the Mergers and Acquisitions team at Bain & Company. Neil, welcome, and thanks for helping us kick off this series.
1: Thanks, Keith, for having me. Very glad to join you.
0: Neil, before we dive into the M&A team, uh, as we always do on the podcast, i like for people to get a sense of who you are and how you got to where you are. And maybe we could just start with your background. Like myself, you're a fellow Jersey boy.
1: Jersey pride.
0: Jersey pride. That's right. We had a branding issue with the Jersey Shore a couple of years ago, but we're back. Neil, how did you choose your college and your major when you were looking at sort of how to start your sort of professional journey?
1: Yeah, for me, it was really a combination of looking at the campus the academics, and the people. And so I did the standard thing of going on a bunch of college tours and trying to get a feel for the place and the people. And what I found from a campus perspective is I really liked the idea of being on a real campus and feeling like you're getting that college experience, but being in a city. And so Harvard being in Boston, but having a true campus really had that combination, and I really enjoyed that. And obviously from an academic standpoint, The uh, combination of both the coursework and some of the opportunities outside the classroom to get to hear interesting speakers and go to interesting events was really appealing. Probably the biggest question I had would just be, you know, what would the people be like? My high school wasn't a place that had a lot of people go to Harvard. It had been a long time, so I really hadn't had a lot of exposure. And you you hear all the myths about what it's like so it was really important to me to actually have the chance to meet some of my classmates and did that through the admin weekend and, and through various other events and came away feeling really good about the types of people that I'd get to meet and, and go to school with. And so that was a really important factor as well.
0: And you, you ended up majoring in government at Harvard. There was actually a government major that sat in my bay when I joined Bain. And I remember, because I went to the other school in Cambridge, thinking, government, is that a real major? Of course it is. But what did you want to do on the back end of that? And how did you decide on government being your path at Harvard?
1: Yeah, Keith, definitely an interesting conversation. The first time I came home and told my parents I was going to major in government, a lot of questions on that one. But ultimately, for me, it came down to economics or Gov, which is Harvard's version of political science. And while I felt like economics was probably the more practical choice in terms of having a clear path into what it meant career-wise, ultimately, I just really enjoyed my Gov classes a lot more. And I let that guide me because I felt like Really, what I was going to get out of college is an education and how to think. And regardless of what the specific field was, I felt like it could be applicable. And having the opportunity in Gov to work on and learn about issues in national security, international relations, other areas that I was really interested in, just felt like a better fit for me. And so that's what drove that choice.
0: We get asked a lot in recruiting, does Bain hire this type of major? Does Bain hire that type of major? And I say, we hire people that know how to think. And if you can find a context that resonates with your personal interests, you'll learn a lot more about how to think because you'll actually engage in the material. For me, that was engineering. For other people, that's liberal arts. For some, it's government or economics. And I say, they're they're all good. Just learn the stuff and jump in with both feet, whatever you choose.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And Then they were sort of like, I wanted to spend time learning things that I was excited about and being in classes that I wanted to be in. And so it was sort of just choosing a major based on that.
0: Yeah, Now, Neil, on the back end of that, you know were you thinking about consulting or banking or you know m and a that early in your journey what was your what was your path coming out of Harvard and taking that first professional step?
1: Yeah, well, growing up, I had never heard of banking or consulting. I certainly did not come to Harvard with that sort of in mind. I mean, I think I had always thought about potentially law school as a possibility, and over time, I obviously learned a little bit more about the you know, the different options out there, including banking consulting and and other roles and so as I was coming out, I kind of had a, a two-pronged approach, I guess. I applied to law school thinking that's one path that I'm interested in. And then also, you know, selectively applied to jobs, thinking in an ideal world, I'd love to spend a couple of years doing something before I go to grad school. And I just want to make sure it would be the right thing, right? And so I had two probably primary areas of interest. One was around government. And, you know, is there an interesting job in policy or national security in particular that... I could do after school uh, or, you know, if not that, then is there something more on the business side? And so I kind of did the normal recruiting path. I, I was pretty selective about where I applied. I didn't sort of take a broad swath, but I did interviewed for some consulting roles and a few finance roles. And, uh, you know, obviously was lucky enough to get an offer with Bain uh, and was thinking about Bain versus a role in the government, as well as, uh, you know, a couple of other finance roles, but that's kind of how I approached the process.
0: So tell me a little bit about the government role. Would you have been sort of the stereotypical government bureaucrat or were you looking at uh, something that was the start of a longer career goal? Or as you said, you were thinking about law school. So, you know, was this a two-year temporary thing that you were considering and how did you choose?
1: Yeah. So I was always thinking about this first step as a couple of years pre-grad school and likely pre-law school. And so the government role was you know, in national security uh, on the intelligence side. And so it was it was frankly, you know, something that I had always been dreaming about doing and a really sort of interesting thing. And it's kind of a very different process than, you know, you're consulting and banking where they show up at college and you, you do the interviews and it's a very standard path. It's a little bit different when you're applying for government jobs, but I, you know, basically had to submit a, like a writing sample. They, I guess, read it and, and decided that they'd be interested in hiring me. And and it was a different path than most of the people in that role actually had PhDs already. And so, but but it was interesting. And so, I thought about that and then obviously with Bain the just getting having a chance to I think have a training in the core sort of business fundamentals but also I think what was really interesting about it was just the broader skill set you get around how you break down a problem, how you communicate it, how you interact with people at the executive level. I felt like that was going to be a really important skill set to have broadly. And then I think the other thing for me that was really a huge factor was just What is the team I get to work with? Because I think particularly when you're a junior person, you know, you're soaking up what you see in the workplace and the people that you're, particularly the senior folks, you know, how do they operate and how can I learn from them? And that's where I just felt like a place like Bain would give me so much because I met so many great people along the way. And that was a big swaying factor in figuring out, you know, where do I want to take this first path uh, step in my career?
0: It's interesting because you mentioned that your focus in, in your undergraduate studies was how to learn, how to think, how to solve problems, and that's you're actually applying the same criteria to where you're going to go after school, which is really cool to see. What stands out to you about your time as an AC at Bain? I think you were an AC for about two years after your undergrad.
1: Yeah, so I would say it's professionally, it very much was what I hoped it would be in terms of acquiring a toolkit around Taking a really structured approach to problem solving and answering questions and sort of being tasked with going and finding a bunch of information, digesting that information, quickly synthesizing it, and figuring out how I communicate it at a level that will be digestible for my supervisors and ultimately for our clients and executive audiences. And I and I feel like what I didn't fully appreciate at the time, that skill set I think has really followed me in every job I've ever had. And I think That, when I think about my time as an AC, was probably the biggest professional thing in some ways. And I got to do some really interesting projects. You know, I did like a a market entry project for a company looking to go into India and China. And it was really kind of being, applying some of the stuff I learned in kind of school to evaluate markets and then actually getting the chance to present to, you know, some of the senior executive team on the China market. It was just as in, you know, right out of college, a really great experience. And I think the private equity group was the other place where I really felt, um, just got to work on a, a, really, a number of really different industries, just diving into these really short projects where you're trying to figure out, is this a good industry to invest in or not? And, and all the sort of analysis and thinking that goes into that, uh, those were probably the, the two areas I, I found most interesting. But I would say the biggest thing for me of those years is really on the relationship side. And I think there's two levels of that. I mean, I already talked a little bit about the kind of senior folks you get to meet and how you learn from them and, and the relationships you build. And that's great. But what's amazing really is the kind of people you start with, the kind of cohort of of other ACs. And you start with 30 other people in my class. And then around you, there's other classes. So you've got, you know, 100 people kind of doing a similar thing. And it's just a really great group of people. You're all kind of going through the same journey career wise. You're also at the very similar place in life kind of, you know, socially. So it's just a pretty incredible experience of just developing really strong relations with people who have become lifelong friends. And and I think that's probably in some ways the most important thing I took away from being an AC. And as I think about almost my career journey, at almost every step, I've gone back to that group and consulted with them and talked to them and, hey, let me get your take on this thing. And it's really amazing to see that. And so that was probably the other big thing I would say that sticks out for my AC years, just kind of the, the great friendships and relationships I built.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I still keep in touch with several of the ACs I started with you know, over 25 years ago. And that experience of sort of going through the same thing together, experiencing it all slightly differently, but but bonding around the shared the shared learning curve, so to speak, um, is something that just can't be replicated a lot of places. And honestly, I think that camaraderie in the AC and consultant programs at Bain is, is part of the secret sauce. I, I just don't think you get that elsewhere. I want to talk about what you did after that, because I think most people know, you know, ACs will stay and get directly promoted to consultant like I did. But like me, a lot of them will even go back to business school. I think what most people don't realize is that we also send some to law school and some to medical school and, and other professional programs. You actually restarted the journey that you were on at Harvard uh, and went back to law school. Can you talk a little bit about that and and maybe just why you knew that was the right next step for you? And then we'll shift to what you did afterwards and how you thought about that decision point.
1: Yeah, sure. So I was, you know, I had been admitted my senior year. Uh, and so I was deferring law school um, to join Bain. And and at the time, and I don't know if it's it's changed since then, but at the time it was kind of two years was kind of the time you could get to defer. And then after that, you, you sort of had to make a choice. So I was really enjoying my time as an AC. I think if I had the option to stay an extra year, I would have, but I had to make a decision. And as I thought about law school, I still had that passion for public policy and government. And I thought, well, this is a, this is a degree and a network of people that I think will be very helpful in pursuing the, the public policy and government path. And so that was one big driver of, you know, why law school versus other grad schools. And the second thing was, I actually thought you know, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is probably a funny thing to say for someone going to law school. But I thought I wanted maybe to be an academic. And uh, you know, being a law professor was something that was appealing to me because it's a bit more of a practical bent, if you will, on academia. And so I went to law school with the thesis that, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to law school and explore the legal academic route. And if you know, that's so that's one path, the other path obviously would be more of a public policy path. And that, those were the two things that really drove me to say, OK, I'm going to go to law school.
0: Very cool. And so let's fast forward through law school. You get to the end of it and you're thinking about what career-wise at that point.
1: Yeah. So I think I spent the first half of law school trying to figure out whether I wanted to be a professor or not. doing all the things you'd need to do that, you know, research and journals and things like that. And figured out that while I enjoyed the writing aspect and the kind of thinking aspect of academia, it was more solitary than I would have liked. I missed the sort of team element of it. And also I, I think just realize that you know, I think you've got to have a real passion for legal scholarship, right, to go down that path. And so I knew I didn't want to be an academic. And at that point, I was starting of thinking about, well, what's next? And really, the two logical avenues were one, finding something in the government that was exciting, or you know, going back on the business side. And on the government side, I thought about that at the time. It was right around. It was right right around the 2008 election, and so. Really, the path there would have been, you know, joining a campaign and, and sleeping on floors and knocking on doors and doing all that for, you know, 16 months and hoping that you, you know, sort of that leads to a job in the government, which I think has its appeals in some ways, but also staring down the reality of having student loans and all that kind of thing. You know, I I opted for the path that I thought had a little bit more financial stability to it. Uh, and so then was thinking about, okay, well, what would I want to do in business? And, At the time, it was really, you know, I had an offer to return to Bain, which was something that was really appealing to me. And so I thought about that. But I also had spent time when I was at Bain working in private equity, as I mentioned. And many of my friends had kind of went into private equity. And and it it seemed like a really interesting way to to learn, continue to learn. And I just enjoyed the casework so much that I said, well, you know, I think I want to try this out. I want to actually go down the path of actually being an investor rather than just consulting to our clients. And so I was lucky enough to join a firm called Charles Bank Capital Partners based in Boston, which was you know actually one of the clients I worked for when I was at Bain and, and also had a, a pretty strong pipeline of former Bainies there and spent two years there, um, really learned a lot about how to think about investing and how to take the full approach to diligence, uh, you know, outside of just the kind of you know, market and, and customer work that you, know, you focus on in, in PEG, you know, you know the, all the other aspects of investment diligence and you know, that was a a great learning experience and a really nice way to kind of build on, you know, what I learned at Bain, because actually a lot of the same toolkit was being applied just in a, you know, a little bit of a deal.
0: So then like the sirens call, you end up back in government. Talk about the transition from private equity back to government.
1: Yeah, no, It's one of those things that was always a bug right in the back of my head that I've got this passion. I got to find a way to sort of satisfy that. I would sort of feel like From a personal perspective, I I just, I always wanted to have that service experience and and being in the government. And so always had kind of my eye open in in terms of if there was something interesting, I would think about it. Um, and very serendipitously, this opportunity came up at the treasury department where they happened to be looking for someone who had private equity and alternative investment experience to go figure out whether there were risks in that area in, you know, terrorist financing and proliferation finance. And, when I heard about that, it was just one of these things. I was like, wow, it's hard to think of another intersection of what I have been doing with national security policy work that would be sort of more on point. Uh, and so it was just one of those opportunities. I said, I just have to take it on. And, and I was really lucky that the folks at Charles Bank were super supportive because they, they heard about it and said, that sounds really cool, right? And so that's what brought me down to DC. And so I spent two years at Treasury and you know, basically, the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which is kind of a funny name, but really it was the kind of the policy shop for a combination of our, you know, economic sanctions and other financial measures uh, we're using to combat terrorist financing, and proliferation finance. And it was a really great introduction to how the national security policy process works and getting to, you know, very quickly work on a number of issues that were pretty active at the time I worked on sanctions on the on the libya during the libya crisis spent a lot of time doing iran policy a little bit on syria as well and so got a really great introduction to the policymaking process that way
0: now i put all that together and i started to say this before this last experience but the one you took after that is you know one of those things that you probably have been accidentally preparing for your entire career so talk about the role that you took after uh, treasury
1: yeah, no, it's it's funny, Keith, and I, I, as I think back in my career there, it's you know, I think a common theme is I've been lucky to have things come up that just seem like a really interesting fit of what I was doing previously. And, and I've kind of let myself guide it, be guided by, hey, if I'm excited about something and I think it's a great group of people. That's what I what draws me, and I think it's similar. I, mean, I was having a great experience at Treasury. Was really lucky to be with a you know a great group of people, work on interesting stuff. And then you know this opportunity came up in the private sector where there was a, a fund being started to look at making growth capital, uh, primarily minority and mezzanine debt investments in companies focused on the national security space, whether that's government services or you know, defense or, or, but really kind of target that space. And I said, wow, like that's really interesting, right? So now I can continue to sort of work in the national security space, which I'm really passionate about, start to continue to grow my kind of business and private sector skills and stay in investing. And so that's what led me to, to join. And, and it was, um, the other thing that was really interesting about it was it was a, a first time fund. And so, you know, I joined at really the starting point and was part of the process of helping to build and we were going through the fundraising process. And so I learned a lot about just how you kind of start something. And, and I, I was lucky to work with some some great people who you know were driving it, but just to be on the ground floor and being exposed to that um, was, was also something that was appealing because that was a little bit different than anything that I had done.
0: Yeah. I think like a lot of people that we talked to on the show, it's a really unique opportunity that leverages all of the experiences. You know, I think about your strategy skills from Bain, your government major in college, you had private equity experience, you had government experience and 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 had an interest in national security and experience in national security. And then a fund comes up looking at making investments in the national security apparatus. Who better on the planet to start with that team, right?
1: Uh, yeah, it was just one of these kind of serendipitous, like it all kind of came together. Right. And I remember, you know, talking to some of my colleagues at Treasury about it. And when I was describing it, they were just saying, wow, this just sounds like a really good fit for you. Like we, you know, we don't want you to leave, but I get it. Right. And it's just one of these things, right. It's, it's just, it comes up and you, you say, well, it just seems too interesting not to to take a stab and see what that's like. Um, and so it was a you know good experience in terms of a couple things. I think one is we were focused on the lower middle market. So I got to work with a lot of kind of founder-owned services businesses and saw how those businesses get scaled and then get to a point where they need growth capital, right? Uh, And I think it's funny because we sometimes will look at some of those businesses in in my current role. And so just having experienced that, um, obviously in a a different context of more national security services-focused businesses. But, you know, I think that was a really interesting piece of the job to be able to work with those types of businesses and some really great founders and, and uh, CEOs.
0: You rejoined Bain as a consultant. Uh, you had now been gone for several years, but like a lot of people, including many we've had on the show, you were what we call a boomerang. You left and came back. How did that come about?
1: I think for me... Bain was a place I loved working when I was an AC. I loved the people. I loved the culture. There was a lot about it that was very hard to leave. And I left because there were other interesting things out there that I wanted to try. But the core of what I enjoyed about the place always stayed with me. And so two things happened. One, you know, as I thought about long term, I realized, you know, being on the minority and and, and Mesdat investing front. You know, I think it was just a little bit different than control buyout in terms of the level of involvement you've got with the different businesses and operationally. And so I was thinking, well, that may not be long term where I want to be from an investor standpoint. And at the same time, Bain opened its DC office, and so I think it's one of those things where if there had been a DC office right after law school, you know, I, I may have went right right to right back to Bain. And so when there was a DC office opening, I. I thought this this could be pretty interesting and was lucky enough to sort of be still be in touch with a, a bunch of folks at Bain and kind of through a number of conversations with them, ended up talking to the leadership of the Bain DC office and had the opportunity to come back. And so for me, I think as I thought about it, I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm doing this because I want to make a long, I've now done a bunch of different things. Like my career has been sort of a looking at different opportunities and going for things that I find interesting and learning. And now I'm I'm a little bit ready to, Sort of try to find a place, a home for a little while, and I knew that Bain would be a great home, and so the opportunity to stay in DC and work at Bain was something that was really exciting, and so rejoined I think in 2014.
0: And as you rejoined Bain, I know you stayed for several years as a consultant and moved your way up on on that side of the house. Did you have an area of focus? What where did you specialize? What practice areas were you trying to work in most?
1: Yeah, I would say probably two areas, right? From an industry perspective, I did a lot of work in aerospace and defense, which was both sort of just personally an interest area of mine, given the kind of government tie. And also obviously had spent a few years working on investing in that space. So I I knew it reasonably well. And and, in DC, you know, we've got a great group of Partners and, and folks focused on A and D, and so it was a natural place for me to to plug in and, and got to work on some really interesting projects. And then I think the other big area I would kind of call it a combination of corporate strategy, M and and private equity diligence. And so I did on the corporate side a lot of portfolio strategy work, and then that led to sort of some you know kind of broader transformation work. And then uh, spent a fair amount of time in private equity as well in our due diligence and, and uh, post act cases.
0: Neil, in 2018, you became the director of Global M&A for Bain. That's not a role that I've seen prior to you being in it uh, at Bain & Company. Can you talk a little bit about how that opportunity came about? And that's probably where we're going to spend the rest of our time on this conversation because I think it's a really exciting new venture for Bain or relatively new venture for Bain.
1: Yeah, no, it's certainly for me, it was a bit of a uh, unexpected shift in the career path. You know, I and I think I had been back at Bain for about... Um, for going into five years. I had been on the consulting side, was just finishing my first year as a principal and got a call out of the blue from our office head saying, hey, can we chat? And I was like, (laughs) hopefully I didn't do anything wrong. you know." But uh, it it turned out that we had at the time just completed our first uh, scope acquisition, which was forward. And I think saw a lot of potential in what we could do from an M&A standpoint, doing similar deals. And also realized that it's a pretty intensive process to get a deal done and there's a repeatability to it in terms of trying to have folks who've got expertise on how you get a deal from kind of origination to close so you know, I think the firm made a decision that hey look we're excited about M;A we want to do more of this to do that we want to build up an internal capability and I think looking across the the kind of folks that, at the firm. I, I happened to be someone that had private equity experience and Bain experience. And so they asked me, hey, would you be interested in kind of starting up this M&A team? And I wasn't expecting this, but it, as it came up, I, it, similar to some of these other opportunities, the more I thought about it, I just said, wow, this is a really, really exciting combination of all the work I've been doing to date, right? You know, the portfolio strategy work, all the consulting stuff at Bain, the prior work I did in investing in private equity to be able to combine those things and then have the other piece of actually helping to build something to sort of create Bain's M&A capability. I mean, I just thought of that as a really exciting career opportunity. And then the other piece of it was just getting to work with some of the most senior people at the firm and being able to learn from them. I mean, Just some of the conversations I had during even the interview process, I just came away so impressed with the people and say, "Wow, this just would be one of those things that I, I think i'll just I'll really enjoy I'll learn a lot yeah I, I, you know I'm not a hundred percent sure where it's going to head it's not as as straightforward a clear a path as being on the consulting side, but it hits so many of the things that I'm excited about and want to do and that I'm just going to take a flyer on and see how, where it takes me
0: and Neil, you mentioned forward in there uh, for those that are listening a couple episodes back, we interviewed Steph Chavin, who talked about her journey and how she helped work on the diligence for Forward as part of the team that we put together for that. I think when we realized, wow, this is actually a full-time job. We also had Pete Forsberg on the podcast talking about Forward. Pete is now back in the Bain alumni pool, but he uh, had great things to say about Forward and the value that they're bringing to Bain. Neil, let's talk a little bit about M&A at Bain. Uh, which is where you're spending your time these days. How would you describe Bain's overall philosophy on M&A, uh, both with our clients and and now with ourselves?
1: You know, I think as we started out, I think the way we thought about it is, look, we ought to really eat our own cooking. How would, we, how would we talk to our clients about, you know, what it takes to build a successful M&A capability? And I think we really followed some of the very same themes, which we'd say, look, the most successful acquirers are serial acquirers they develop a repeatable capability and with repetition and pattern recognition you get better at doing deals so you want to do deals frequently and you want to be able to vary the type of deals you do from small to large from scale to scope right what the, our research would show is that the folks who only do selective large deals you know that tends to be a less successful path than someone who is doing a lot of deals frequently and varying the size of those deals and the types of those deals and developing a capability for how you identify, how you diligence, how you integrate these acquisitions. And so our goal was, how do we develop a serial acquisition capability at Bain? And we were starting obviously from, you know, square one. Uh, We had, you know, done a a few deals in, you know, kind of our history, but really around 2018 was where we said, we're going to really try to Develop this. And I think where we started was, okay, well, let's start with some smaller scope deals. Let's try to de-risk it a little bit by identifying companies that we've worked with before. For us, so much of the value of the acquisition will be finding a company that brings great expertise and capabilities that can plug in seamlessly into Bain and work with our culture and our people and our clients. And so in some ways, the best approach to finding that is actually working together on clients first. And so initially, you know, some of the early deals we did were with companies that we had worked with a lot. Over time, uh, you know, w- one thing we thought about is, look, it'd be great if you could partner first every time. But the reality is that's not the way the M&A market works. And sometimes great companies come up and, you know, there isn't a chance to partner first. So how do we get confident enough that we can test the cultural fit, test the sort of go to market and the value creation thesis during our diligence process, uh, even if we haven't worked together before. And so, you know, we've, I think, um, over time learned how to do that. Uh, and, you know, so we, you know, we'll do deals where we haven't partnered as well. But, you know, so there's a piece of this around, you know, doing a series of deals and getting the learning process. And, you know, the learning process is both about how you diligence, but also actually, a lot about how you plug something into Bain and find a way to maximize the value for both sides.
0: You will use the term scale and scope acquisition sort of rolls off the tip of your tongue. Can you just describe the difference between the two for people who may not have caught the, the distinction that you were drawing there?
1: Sure. So I would think of a scale deal as one in which a buyer is seeking to enlarge its presence in a market or sector where it already participates and typically there's a high degree of business overlap between the target and acquirer such that the combination is really about expanding the existing business line and by growing larger in that business line accessing some of the economic benefits that come with greater scale typically a larger firm is going to enjoy a better brand more differentiation an improved cost position, greater ability to invest. Think about something like R&D, for example, where if you're making a lot of investments in developing a new product, you get much more bang for your buck if you've got a larger client base to go sell that product to. In a scope deal on the other hand, the target is typically related, but it's a distinct business. And the goal is really for the buyer to enter a new market a new product line or channel or acquire a set of new technological capabilities that either it doesn't have today or has less of than it would like to
0: got it got it and as you think about the deals that we've done um, you know we've done minority investments we've done larger investments we've done straight acquisitions you know what do you see as some of the capabilities that we're adding because I I know you know, we'll have a conversation with Lauren Kelly on the podcast, uh, and they bring a really unique asset to Bain that nobody else has. Uh, and, and now we do and can use that to further benefit our clients and, and give our people access and exposure to things that, that you can't get anywhere else. You know, as you think about the acquisitions and the deals that you've been a part of so far, you know, what has you excited about the, the group of them as a, as a unit?
1: Yeah, if I take a step back and think about our broader objective here, we really think about this as a world in which the consulting market is evolving rapidly. Our clients' needs are evolving rapidly. And we want to make sure we are constantly at the cutting edge in terms of the capabilities we can bring, the expertise, the talent, the creative approaches to problem solving. And while we certainly strive to produce as much of that as we can in house, we also recognize that we can't possibly have a monopoly on innovation. And there are great companies out there that are pushing the envelope on new analytical approaches, on using advanced technologies, bringing new data sets to bear, and helping solve their client's toughest problems. And what gets really exciting about M&A for me is having the opportunity to meet those companies and finding that mix of a great team that's developed something really unique or best in class from a capability standpoint and is driving real results with their clients and getting great customer feedback and being able to say, well, well, wow, you guys have really built something great. And when you think about the potential that can have when you combine it with Bain's incredible network globally of clients, change-oriented executives, and our own internal talent and breadth and depth of expertise we bring across industries, that creates a real platform to amplify the impact that these great companies can have. And you know, when you're in those initial dialogues and brainstorming, It's really amazing to see the ideas that get generated and the excitement that comes with thinking about taking the set of products and capabilities that have been developed and now bringing that to an audience of Fortune 500 and leading private equity clients all over the world. That story really resonates with the types of founders and companies that we're typically working with who are really looking for A way to continue expanding the impact that they're already having and so if i think about some of the areas we're really focused on as we think about bringing in these outside capabilities and and trying to expand both our impact and the impact of these firms one big area is obviously digital and within digital advanced analytics we have a burgeoning in-house capability but we've augmented that with the acquisition of pangea a firm in italy and spike a firm in chile both of these firms Our firms that we partnered with and worked on at Clients Together saw the capabilities they bring, saw the quality of their team, and saw the cultural fit and ultimately said, well, we're doing great things just partnering, but if we're able to actually bring you in house, we can expand that even further. And that story has really played itself out. And the opportunities that have been created for taking the set of proven capabilities at the clients that they had prior to Bain and now bringing them to a much bigger set of clients, a much more global set of clients uh, has created opportunities both for Bain in terms of our ability to better serve our clients and also for the teams at these firms who now have a lot of interesting projects to be working on and getting to challenge themselves with new problems, new clients, new industries, et cetera. Another area that we've looked at is Question of how do we make sure that we are bringing the best data to bear in helping our clients attack their toughest decisions? And so, Keith, earlier you mentioned Lauren, who is fantastic, by the way. The company she's the CEO of, Opix Engine, is the leading database in the world for benchmarking SaaS and software companies. And when we acquired it last year, we were immediately able to bring that to bear. To advise our private equity clients in terms of their diligence of software companies and then after acquisition to use that data set to help identify the primary opportunities for improvement as they compare their companies to peers and then another example in the data space was our acquisition of SPS which is you know the leading deal origination and transaction database which we acquired in late 2020 and have been using extensively in some of our work with private equity funds on their fund strategy to help them think through how to improve target identification and how to ensure that they are plugged into the sources in the target areas that are showing the most deals and are actually showing the most attractive deals. And Then maybe a third area to call out from a capability standpoint is an ESG where Last year, we completed a minority investment alongside a partnership in Persephone, which is a leading SaaS platform that helps investors calculate, analyze, manage, and report on their carbon footprints. And so the idea is to pair their tool with Bain's expertise in carbon transitions and our understanding of private equity firm priorities. To develop a solution that's going to help them on their own net zero journeys with the goal of being able to manage your carbon inventory with the same level of rigor and transparency that you put on your core financial metrics and so that was exciting to have the chance for MA to be at least a small part of what we hope will be a, a longer term journey in supporting our clients on their own climate journeys.
0: Neil, I know your team is growing. I know that the work that we're doing for Bain and for our clients uh, in M&A is also a big part of our business. What ways could people thinking about joining Bain plug into the effort, plug into the expertise, potentially work with some of the companies that that are now part of the Bain family? What would you say to them about what they're hearing so far today on this episode?
1: So in terms of exposure, I think there are a couple different angles. The first is, I think once we've acquired these companies, our consultants are going to have access to their capabilities in client work. And that might be, you know, you're working on a software company diligence and you've got access to the best data set in the world on helping to benchmark how that company compares to others. Or you're trying to solve a really hard problem on customer analytics and, We've got access to teams of experts in Italy and Chile and other places that have done this in a number of different settings and may be able to add a unique way of thinking about it. Um, and so their expertise becomes something that you could bring to bear in your own work with your clients. I think secondly, you know, we plan to continue the MA journey we're on and and, and hope and expect uh, that we'll do many acquisitions in the future. And typically these acquisitions, when we're diligence them, we're staffing consultants to help us evaluate the company from a commercial standpoint and a fit standpoint. And there are opportunities for folks to be staffed on these teams and actually help diligence an asset on behalf of Bain and, and help decide whether this is a deal we should do or not. You know, I think third, there's Once the deal is done, we spend a lot of time thinking about the right pathway for integration and how do we create a business plan that's going to maximize our odds of success in terms of who are the clients we should plug this new capability into first, what are the products that we might want to develop together, what is a new IP that we can create, and a lot of opportunities for people who are interested to get involved in that. And then finally, you know, our, our team is expanding. And um, for folks who are interested and have the right backgrounds uh, over time, there could be opportunities to join.
0: Neil, that's really awesome. And you started this uh, part of the conversation by saying, you know, part of our objective is to eat our own cooking. And what you just described and how we're approaching M&A as a firm, I'm happy to say is, is very consistent with what we've been advising our clients on as someone who's worked on M&A a bunch of times throughout my career. Neil, I want to thank you for your time today. I know you are very busy. I look forward to uh, continuing to see uh, the press releases, the amazing capabilities that you're bringing into Bain, uh, and just your continued success in your journey. It's been really awesome to have you on today. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Keith.
0: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.